Hello, Radioland, Podcast Bill, and all the ships at sea. My name is Kate Wolf, and you are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. Joining me today is my co-host, Eric Newman. Hi, Kate. Hi, Eric. Eric's our gender and sexuality editor, and this is his first show. Welcome, Eric. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. And today we're going to be talking with Kelly Jones, art historian, whose new book is South of Pico, African-American artist in Los Angeles in the 1960s and the 1970s. This was really a fascinating study. I loved reading it earlier this week. And it's an interesting time that I knew nothing about in Los Angeles, wow. actually. And especially because most of my research deals with kind of diaspora art in America in the 1920s, primarily focused around the Harlem Renaissance. And this was just a totally interesting, rich history of a period that I knew nothing about. I'm so glad that you're going to be talking to Kelly with me today. So let's get to that interview. talking today with Kelly Jones. Kelly Jones is an associate professor of art history at Columbia University. She's been honored with numerous awards from places such as the Hutchin Center for African and African American Research, Harvard University, and she was named a MacArthur Foundation Fellow in 2016. She's carried many national and international exhibitions, including Now Dig This, Art in Black Los Angeles, 1960-1980, through 1980. and she's the author of several books, including I Minded, Living and Writing Contemporary Art. Her newest book, South of Pico, African-American Artists in Los Angeles in the 1960s and the 1970s, was published recently by Duke University Press. Thanks, Kelly, for speaking with us today. It's quite a pleasure, really an honor to speak with you all. Well, I'm so excited because, as you know, we record in Los Angeles, so this book had special resonance to me, and that's why I was so interested to talk with you about it. And I'm just wondering, you write about kind of a core group of artists in this book. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about who you write about and their work and maybe their connection. Well, sure. I basically set it up in three chapters. And so you kind of go from people who were there kind of the longest and then people who are the kind of younger generation in that 1960s and 70s moment. And most of these people came to L.A. or are in L.A. because of African-American Great Migration, which happened in the 20th century. You know, some of the people who get there are Charles White, for instance, is one person who's originally from Chicago, heads to New York and then heads to L.A. and kind of really coalesces you know, a community of artists, because he's of this group, kind of the most well-known artist when the book begins in around 1960. Betty Saar, of course, becomes a great star. She's still a great star with us. Yes, But she was born there, but her parents came from elsewhere as migrants. So, you know, those are the two kind of things that I set up you know, between people who arrive there on their own and then also people who are born there but are children of the Great Migration. And then you have other generations, such as John Otterbridge, people who are working with, very specifically with an assemblage aesthetic, and that would be John Otterbridge, Noah Purifoy, and Betty Sarr comes back in the second chapter. And then there's another chapter that is about the kind of galleries and museums that supported these artists. Many of them, you know, 
organized by these artists themselves who really were not showing. I mean, nobody would show their work, so they decided to take that on. And then finally, the last chapter is about artists that perhaps become some of the most well-known. David Hammond certainly is in that group. Mm-hmm. Sanganin Goody, Marin Hassinger, and Houston Conwell. And these are all people who start including performance as part of their art-making processes. And so they're making sculpture, they're making prints, they're making performance. So they're doing a true multimedia thing with their work. Right. And then I kind of end with a brief look at Sanford Biggers, who just kind of, I feel, inherits the kind of multimedia, wide-ranging practice of these artists in L.A. I think what makes L.A. different from a place like New York is it's seriously multimedia history. And by that, I mean, you know, people are combining media. It's not that they work in painting and then they work in sculpture. They combine these things to come up with something else, which is slightly different from what happens in New York, at least in terms of it's a consistent profile in L.A. Kelly, can you also tell us a little bit about kind of why these years and why Los Angeles, right? So why the 1960s, 1970s, and just sketch a little bit for the listeners that historical backdrop against which your artists are emerging. Well, I think I first became interested in these artists without knowing it, meeting, because many of them end up coming to New York after this period. Right. And I actually met them. Oh, wow. <laughs> and so, you know, earlier on, and then went back and looked at their histories. And in looking at them, I said, wait, Marin Hassinger, she's from L.A., and David Hammonds came from L.A., and Mel Edwards, I mean, I knew Mel Edwards for many, many years and hadn't really known about his Los Angeles moment because he's actually from Texas, goes to L.A., and then comes to New York. So it is part of, you know, my own interest in the work, but then also thinking about Los Angeles as in many ways, an endpoint for the Great Migration in terms of labor. If one of the main reasons why people are leaving the South is for work, and much of it is driven, you know, between the two world wars by the kind of war industry, technology, labor, that kind of ends up in L.A. with the, you know, kind of technology that you have there, aerospace, and so on that is still in effect in the 60s. And so you see many people, even people who have, say somebody like John Otterbridge, who is from North Carolina and then goes to Chicago and then ends up in L.A., you know, many people end up there driven by the kind of availability of work. So I wanted to think about that and think about, you know, it was a way for me to think about how migration or black migration, what the impact of migration was on arts materiality in terms of the stories people want to tell with their work. And then also how also another part of black migration was to find a space of freedom, a safe space. And I argue that, you know, the artists create those spaces in their work. What kind of city was Los Angeles for African Americans at the time? You say that it was an endpoint for migration, but was it, you know, so there was a large African American population here, but in terms of segregation or racial prejudice, by 1960, can you sketch a little bit where the city was at from what you found in your research? 
I think it's like many cities who are part of that. I mean, it, you know, California was not a slave state. So, you know, you have people like Biddy Mason, you know, in the 19th century going there and kind of testing those laws. But it doesn't mean there wasn't prejudice. And it doesn't mean as you have more influx of people that laws kind of spring up to control them or restrict them, like restrictive covenants. But it was still a place of relative freedom. I mean, and this was something that I really looked into for quite a while. I asked so many people, like, why did you go to California? Why California? And it was always this idea of freedom. It sounds almost corny, you know. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow, you can just be who you are in California, in L.A. But actually, people thought like that across the board. And that's borne out in the actual work where there, if you think about the art world in LA, it was very small, almost non-existent. It begins to kind of thrive around this time period, late, late 50s into the 60s, 70s and on. So there weren't a lot of rules and regulations in that way as you would find, say, on the East Coast and in New York, who had, you know, a longer history of showing art and certainly showing African-American artists as a larger group. There is a history of showing African-American artists in L.A. that goes back, but you don't have the same critical mass. And then, of course, you have a lot of people going there. Also, if you think about people coming from the South, the weather, as more mm. than one person told me again, is closer to that of the South than, say, New York is or Chicago is or Philadelphia or any of these places that people went to. So you have a critical mass of people going there, but then you also have things like the Watts Rebellion that right. happens, that becomes this kind of signpost about the change of black subjectivity at this time, what this generation will not accept. And that's really, I mean, we know there are other rebellions all around the country, Detroit, Newark, New Jersey, other places, Washington, D.C., but the largest one is in L.A. And so oh. that really becomes a signpost about black subjectivity and the nation. So L.A., in a sense, Watts in particular, becomes an idea of who black people are trying to make themselves out to be. And then also you have movements, the Black Panthers begin in California, right? Not right. L.A., but right. Bay Area, and eventually has an office or a chapter in L.A. So a lot of this stuff, you have Ron Karinga, cultural nationalism, actually beginning in L.A. So you have all these kind of also political movements that begin in California as well. So this is another reason to look at, for me, art is one way to think about history, and sometimes it's the best evidence of what we've done. So I wanted to see how the art worked with what was going on socially, and actually, this is why I loved L.A., because it wasn't just about fists raised on a poster, if you're talking about social justice. It was about something much more complex, and so I wanted to investigate that. Well, speaking of the Watts riots, you write that for Noah Purifoy, for example, that was a huge turning point. And before that, he really hadn't thought of himself as an artist exactly, but after... He did. So what role do you think the riots played in kind of coalescing a community in Watts? I love in the book, something you talk about, especially in the earlier chapters, is this idea of collective work and projects that explored the idea of art as wide ranging rather than an elitist practice. 
So maybe you could just tell us what happened in Watts after the riots and what was the significance just artistically for people? Well, Noah Purifoy is the director of the Watts Towers Art Center when the rebellion takes place. So it takes place right around where he's working. And in the aftermath, he wants to see how art can really narrate what's gone on and be a witness. And of course, it's also in the moment when assemblage practice is on the rise. So you have people working with multimedia sculptural or assemblage practice from the late 50s on, really throughout the century, but in L.A. or in California as a style in the late 50s on. So it's not an accident that he sees that. How do we take this refuse and make it into something that can tell the tale of our existence? And also, I think it's important that it's not, again, a raised fist on a poster. It's something much more complex that is actually taken from the detritus of the rebellion and using these bits of the rebellion as a witness to what has gone on and what needs to change as well. So he's kind of located in the right place at the right time to make that happen. And it also gives him purpose. What he's really interested in is creativity. He's trained as a social worker as well as an artist, even though he said Watts makes him an artist. Mm -hmm. He's actually got art training before that and has been making work as well. But it gave him purpose as an artist. And he really felt that helping people to create something out of their environment, even if it was an environment that was destroyed in some ways, was a way to affect people's psyche and affect change in the world. So he really felt that the word creativity for him was more important than art. You know, how can people be creative beings in this world? And that's what he was interested in. You know, Kelly, you also kind of frame in a similar way. In the introduction, you talk about one way of understanding black art in Los Angeles during this period as this kind of what you call a a move from, quote, the historical to the virtual, right? And also one from social realism, which is the kind of lion's share of art. Like this is Charles White's background, for example, right? Exactly. Um, To kind of greater forms of abstraction. Can you talk to us a little bit about what that shift means or kind of how that shift happened? Social realism is in force or is a dominant style in the 30s and 40s, less so in the 50s. In the 60s, realism comes back in many ways in pop art, and that's why Charles White is kind of more visible at that time. Artists are also influenced by many things. You have the style, as I just mentioned, of assemblage that is very au courant on the West Coast, but also you have people working with a kind of assemblage practice on the East Coast, somebody like a Robert Rauschenberg. He calls his works Combines. It's Neo Dada. It has a different name, although it's still a kind of multimedia found object sculptural practice. These are kind of the styles that people are working with. I think as you move on, you know, artists work with what's new. They also work with new materials. So assemblage is in vogue. Then also you have all these new materials coming into view. You have acrylic paint. You have technology that people are using more and more. So part of it is moving ahead with style and practice. And what if you look at a larger art world, a larger Western practice, people are more involved with performance being a part of that as well. But I think it's also part of a way to not be tied to the body. 
right? Not be tied to the image of the black person, not be tied to the image of the raised fist, right? Mm-hmm. There's got to be another way to narrate who black people are besides that. And I think it's also the maturation of African-American artists generally. You know, you have to recall that until the middle of the 19th century, there were very few black artists. And then once you get into the 20th century, the majority of people are working in New York as part of the Harlem Renaissance. And the Works Progress Administration, you have the development of an American art sector And also for African-Americans, this is a boon because they can get paid to create art. So it gives them a sort of support in the 30s. But there's no real support for African-American artists. There's very little. And so people are really, they're having to make it up. They're having to support themselves in ways that are different, I think, than if we look at a larger American art history. And that was another reason why I was very interested in Los Angeles, because of the way they were able to, these artists were able to support themselves and provide support for others. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour, coming to you from Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. And now for this week's book recommendation. We're so lucky to have George Proshnik back in the studio. His new book is Stranger in a Strange Land, and he's going to tell us about a book recommendation he has. I'm really going to give an author recommendation in this case, someone who I've been reading and then uh, rereading in in the case of certain of her work. But Irene Nimirovsky, who wrote her best-known book, is uh, Sweet Francaise. And I really encourage people to look at this right now. That It's a novel in two parts, the first part of which is about the flight from Paris in the summer of 1940 after Hitler enters the city. And it's just an extraordinary portrait of people from every sector of French society, every socioeconomic class fleeing the city and about their experience just trying to get out of a metropolis. And it has this feel as though it could be about people having to leave L.A. or New York. It's just people who never expected in their lives that they could be on the run. This is It's not specifically... Jewish, in fact, I'm not sure that any of the major characters are Jewish. It's not tied to any particular religion, but it's about suddenly your home turning into a place of dangerous darkness. Mm -hmm. And the second half of the book is about life in an occupied village when many of the women begin having different kinds of liaisons with Nazi officers and there are other people involved with resistance. And it's about what happens next after you flee. But she's an incredible author and made her name when she was only 26 years old with a book called David Golders, which is an astonishing, shocking book about the effects, really, to my mind, of cultural displacement on one's ability to sustain basic human values. It's about an old, very cruel man, rich man, at the end of his life, originally Russian, who ends up in France trying to make his fortune have an afterlife. He's Jewish, and he's foiled at every turn in his efforts to transmit something. But as the book goes on, you realize how much loss preceded his transformation into a kind of monstrous figure. And it's a tour de force. Her books were lost for a while, is that correct? The particularly Sweet Frances okay. wasn't, it was only published for the first time very recently. She mm. herself died in Auschwitz. She herself was originally Russian and ended up in France, a brilliant 
woman who, in fact, more and more of her books have now been reissued, and I encourage people to look at them now, and, and Sweet Frances feels very relevant to our own moment. Uh, reminds us of the author's name again? Irene Nemirovsky. Okay, Irene Nemirovsky. Thank you so much, George, for coming back. I appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Thank you. You're listening to LARB Radio Hour. And now back to our conversation with Kelly Jones, author of South of Pico. Maybe you could uh, tell us a little bit about some of the, for instance, some spaces that were galleries that opened, opportunities that these artists had to show. In particular, you discussed this a little bit, the Golden State Mutual Life Insurance Company and their patronage of Black artists is a really fascinating story. Tell us some institutions that, you know, whether they were small or large that helped support these, these artists. Right. Uh, The Golden State Mutual Life Insurance Company was amazing. They actually started supporting the artists somewhat uh, when they began and commissioned busts of their founders, you know, early on. Right. And when was that? Uh, I believe in the 40s. I I think that's in the 40s, right? And this was their 20th anniversary because they begin in the 20s, this business. Oh, wow. They create in the 50s. They they commission murals, which are still there in their old building. They, They commission a building by Paul Revere Williams, right, a very well-known black architect. And they also put these paintings in there by two East Coast artists, Charles Alston and Hale Woodruff. So they're involved with patronizing artists and architects early on in the 60s as part of their 40th anniversary they decide to start an art collection that is owned by them. And it's really the brainchild of William Pajot, who is working there, who is an artist, who is their chief uh, public relations officer. And, and they kind of start out by actually commissioning a work by Charles White called General Moses. It's a, it's a portrait of Harriet Tubman. Mm. And then they, Pajot really is given a very small budget. And because he is an artist and he knows others, he's able to kind of extend that budget and create this collection, which I think it comes to be over 250 pieces. And when uh, the company moved from L.A. about a decade ago, they actually auctioned off uh, those pieces. Oh, wow. And now they're in, in private collections around the country. But it's it's amazing. You know, these are businessmen. Norman O. Houston is one of them. Then you have galleries like Brockman Gallery. Brockman Gallery, you know, the brothers Alonzo Davis and Dale Brockman Davis, they're artists. And they, they go on what they call this listening tour. I love that story where they go and they're in this VW bug and they travel from L.A. all across the country, sometimes stopping at protests in 1966 to really be a part of different protests. And then they end up in Canada, they come back, they're driving all over, they stop in New York, they start in Washington, D.C., and they're meeting African-American artists around the country uh, just to give a context to what they're up to. And then somewhere on that trip, they decide to open a gallery, which they open in 1967, and it is open until 1992. And, wow. and they, they really make a commitment to showing works, people like David Hammonds, John Otterbridge. Uh, they, they eventually create a nonprofit arm, and they get CETA funds, and, and uh, they create site works by Marin Hassinger. They are very impressive to keep that together. And again, some of these institutions, many of these people are working 
At the same time, they have galleries. Right. So Dale Davis is a high school teacher. Oh, wow. Alonzo Davis is a college professor uh, for much of the time that they have the gallery. And another impressive person is Samela Lewis, who does amazing things. She opens like three galleries, a museum. She starts a magazine, which is still in print. Oh, what's that magazine called? The magazine is called International Review of African-American Art. Oh, wow. And it was called Black Art in International Quarterly when it begins in 1976. So it's been around since 1976. And she does three films on artists. I mean, she's amazing, you know, doing all these things. And her secret is really collaboration. That's what she says. I'm like, how did you do all this? And to top it off, she has a full-time job at Scripps College, I think, until the 80s. Wow. So, (laughs) so, you know, these people are just amazing and amazing their commitment to really getting these works out there. And I think particularly in the case of Samela Lewis, we can really see her as a kind of forerunner of people who are on social media today. You know, she's working all sorts of angles in media to tell people about the work of African-American artists. And she's also an artist, so she's also showing her work. She's, she's doing so many things. So it's really amazing what, what people did in order to really get this work on view. And I think it has an impact today for a younger generation. Speaking of people that do so many things, this book is based in part on research that you did, or you did research for the book while you were also producing Now Dig This um, at The Hammer. And I can you talk a little bit about the difference between writing kind of a re- or a research project and curating an exhibit? Because I imagine there's narrative flows that are very different for both of those projects. Right. Well, in Now Dig This, I was. I was doing my research, and then Gary Garls, who was then at the Hammer, I ran into him, and he was the chief curator. He says, oh, what are you working on? I said, this book on African-American artists in Los Angeles. Are you going to do a show? Oh, when I finish the book. And then he calls me up two weeks later, and he says, are you finished with your book? I have this opportunity for you. And it, it wasn't just an opportunity for me. It was an opportunity for the artist, and that's how I looked at it, you know, okay. to have to create the Getty Research Institute wanted you to create a kind of baseline publication of research, but also do symposia, collect oral histories, go into archives that were basically unknown. And I got to do that. And it helped my project in many ways. I mean, not least of which was actually seeing some of these works in person because if you're just a random researcher, not many people are just going to open their home to you or open their private collections or even open the Whitney Museum of American Art, for instance. But because I was now doing a show, I was able to see some things that I had never seen in real life. Uh, I'd only seen in reproduction and in bad reproduction at that or black and white and come to find out the work was in color. It gave me an opportunity to not so much expand the project, but give it more depth in many ways, and also give back to the artists by showing their work, uh, providing them with new photography of their work. Over the course of the show, many works sold, so that was great for the artists, nice. too. That's fantastic. Um, just as a comparison, in Now Dig This, I have 36 artists, and in South of Pico, I focus really on 9 or 10. Mm. So it's, you get a greater depth of research into specific figures 
that narrate the story as opposed to the exhibition. And with the exhibition, we did a great catalog. I am only one of the writers, right? Right. I just have an essay. This is a book all by me. It's a little bit different. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's great to have those other voices of Jacqueline Stewart, of Roberto Tejada, of Franklin Sermons, and so many others, Naima Keith, contributing to the text. And also the bios, you know, and some of which were basic bios on these artists that were not in circulation at the time. Somebody uh-huh. like a John Riddle. You know, now there is a bio out there with some citations that can be a starting point for further research on the artist. I wonder something about being an art historian and approaching performance always seems so difficult to me because, for instance, the I'm I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing her name right, but Sanga Ngundi, is that... Sangha Nguti. Nguti. Okay. Freeway performance she did. You know, it's something I've heard, I've been hearing about for years in LA. It's it's so infamous. Um, (laughs) Right. And I was surprised in your book to read that it only lasted an hour uh, because (laughs) (laughs) maybe you want to describe it briefly, but she, you know, she got a band of people together and they were playing mute and she outfitted them and, you know, sculptures that she had made and it was all under the freeway. I'm not sure where, but. So I, I, and David Hammonds as well, um, someone who's done all these performances. So how do you, and I think with performance, there's a mythic quality sometimes. So how do you approach either researching or, you know, getting closer to something that you just kind of impossible to see? Well, I think, you know, that's something that we argue about in art history and as uh, performance studies has become part of what we teach. I've been teaching performance since I started teaching there's part of it that you can, some people say, oh, well, it's ephemeral, and so you'll never really know it. And some people say, here's the documentation. Sometimes it's still, sometimes it's video. But I think you get what you can get out of it. You talk to people over time. And in some, sometimes, for instance, not that particular piece, but another piece or different pieces that she's done with Marin Hassinger, where she's activated her sculpture on the wall. I have a picture of that in there. Her well-known piece is called RSVP. Sometimes people reenact stuff, so we see it in our time. You know? And I think right. you just take the information from all of this and you put it together. In art history, people talk about a lot of really ancient things that they really have no evidence of, you right. know, stuff from the Roman times. It can be dust, <laughs> you know, but they have treatises and they have all this stuff, drawings, and you're able to reconstruct or think you can reconstruct what it is. And, and so I think if you use that, what we do in art history, as a guide, we can talk about these things. And of course, with those artists, with uh, Sengen and Goody, she's still with us. And so we can still talk to her about that. And we can talk to her about it over and over and over again. And you may not really get too much information, but you get something, right. you know, out, out of it. But one way we know this piece is because, you know, there's no video of this piece. Right. Okay. Because these artists didn't have money. And so even though video technology was available, they didn't have the funds for that at that time. Now, of course, we can take these on our phones. It's a very different right, moment. Right. But we, we do have slides. Somebody did take pictures. And so those are available. And we can also speak with the artists. There's also a film by Barbara McCullough. Oh. called Shopping Bag Spirits and Freeway Fets. 
Hmm. I think from 79. She interviews many of these artists, including Sanganangudi. Now, we see the slides. Again, it's not like she has video of them, but she does a film basically close to that moment of this performance and Nengudi's response to it, if you can call it a response, it's an artistic response to her questions. So we do have a lot of different kinds of evidence that we can use to make up our story as art historians. Right. And speaking of kind of projecting forward a little bit, I mean, how do you see the kind of legacy of black art in Los Angeles, 1960s, 1970s, moving into kind of the 80s and 90s in the contemporary moment? I mean, what are the kind of shifts or the afterlives and legacies of of this really rich period that you study in your book? Well, I think you can certainly see it today. You know, people like Mark Bradford and, and just his work in general, but him setting up art and practice basically in the same area in Leimert Park where the Brockman Gallery was. So you see, that's a direct legacy right there. Right. You see somebody like Naima Keith, who was my research, curatorial mm-hmm. research assistant. We had her on, on the show. On the show. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, she's the best, 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 who really told me what South of Pico was, because as a New Yorker, I had no idea. And I was like, oh, hmm, okay, great title. Um, <laughs> She also came up with a great title, Now Dig This, but she's fantastic. And now she's, you know, deputy director at California African American Museum. So I, I think there's definitely some great stuff happening in L.A. in terms of this legacy. And also some of the artists who were born there, like Hinde Wiley, Sanford Biggers, as I say, talk about him, how he kind of moves that whole discourse forward as well. Show so many artists, Brenna Youngblood being another one. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're just many, many people. And of course, the importance of the art schools in LA being part of what drives that as well. So I do think it's a it's a wonderful time, especially now, to think about this and and think about these legacies and just the power that that LA has as an art center. Yeah, and an art center for African American artists as well. Yeah. Well, Kelly, thank you so much for speaking with us today. It was really great to talk to you. And the book is is so fascinating. Oh, great. Well, thanks so much. I am so excited to speak with you, too. And and thanks again. Okay. thank you. We've been speaking with Kelly Jones, the author of South of Pico, African-American artist in Los Angeles in the 1960s and 1970s. been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Our executive producers are Medea Ocher and Kate Wolf. Editorial advisor is Janice Rochelle Littlejohn. Our engineer is Ernesto Orellano. Our researcher is Chloe Chapp. Production volunteer is Jake Levins. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their beautiful studios. Tom Lutz is the editor-in-chief and publisher of the Los Angeles Review of Books. 